So this morning we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. During, during the height of the Protestant Reformation, 450, 500 years ago, uh, people would bring their children to the pastors to be baptized on the eighth day. And when they would bring their children to be baptized, usually these families had a name that they had picked out for their children already. So they'd come and they'd say, you know, the pastor would say, what is the name? And sometimes the, the people would give a, a name of some really strong Catholic saint and uh, say something like, oh, his name is Francis. Then the pastor would take the child and say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, John. <laughs> and the parents would be like, what? We, did, we called, him, called him Francis and he named him John. <laughs> They do this multiple times that it happened where they say, What's his name? Uh, Gregory. And he said, Well, I baptized you, Calvin, or something like that. <laughs> and the families would be like, What happened? You see, this is what's happening in a way in this passage is uh, Zechariah has a son and he can't speak and he can't hear, probably, and they're going to name the son Zechariah after him but the wife Elizabeth comes and she says no 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 his name's going to be John it's like what we switched the name right at the last minute is what everybody's thinking because the way you would do it is that normally you would name the son after the father something like that and so Elizabeth wants to name the boy John and they say look to uh, Zechariah and they said look you're, you're trying to make signs to him it's like your wife she's crazy she wants to name him this other name John and he takes a tablet and he says what's the name and he writes the name his name is John because the name of John means the Lord is gracious and so his name is the most fitting thing on this occasion. Because the hymn that he's about to, to sing, this prophetic hymn that he's about to sing, is about the meaning of the name John. It's about how the Lord is gracious. And so even though it's on the occasion of John's birth, this hymn and this story is about Jesus the one who is gracious, the one who would come to redeem his people. And so let us pray. Lord, we come to hear from you. Lord, we pray that we would learn about our gracious Redeemer, Jesus himself, and that the truth of who you are, O Lord, that you are our Redeemer, would sink deep into our hearts. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you look at Zechariah's hymn in verse 68. It starts out, he's got this great hymn of praise, this song that he's singing about the meaning that the Lord is gracious. And it starts out, and he says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited 
and redeemed His people. This is, in, in a way, the summation of the whole song, this whole hymn that He's about to say, which is this, Blessed be the Lord because He has redeemed His people. Talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so as Manuel and I were talking about how do we, how do we actually preach these deep and rich songs and these hymns? And I'm probably about to do what's the worst thing you can possibly do to a hymn or a really beautiful song. And that is to distill it down into a dense theological statement about redemption. And so this is all about redemption. And so in here, you look at what Zechariah is saying on this passage about what is redemption. And I think what we see here is what Zechariah is saying about redemption is that redemption is the costly and unearned deliverance from our enemies accomplished in Jesus. It is our costly and unearned deliverance from our enemies that has been accomplished in Jesus. First off, let's think about how redemption is costly. This idea of redemption. We're talking about, in the Old Testament, the price that it takes to get out of slavery. Redemption in the Old Testament, which is what Zechariah is thinking about here, is the cost it takes to ransom captives. This goes back to the great act of redemption. That is back to uh, the Exodus. To when the Israelites are held captive to Pharaoh. And we see clearly in the Passover story that Pharaoh will not release Israel from captivity. They're too valuable to him. And the cost to deliver God's people ends up becoming the life of the firstborn son or the life of a spotless year old male lamb. So this idea of the firstborn is that there's a costliness to it. See, the firstborn of a newly married couple was often believed to represent the prime of their strength. And so the strength of Pharaoh was the strength of his firstborn son. See, it would take the cost of his most precious son, his strength, to finally break Pharaoh's grasp and let let the people of Israel go. And for the Israelites, it was the blood of this spotless lamb who would be put on the doorposts, you remember, of the, the doors. And the angel of death would pass over the house, sparing the firstborns of the sons of Israel. You see, this was the cost of redemption in the Old Testament, in that great act when the Israelites were in slavery. It was the cost of a firstborn son or a spotless lamb. And so then this is what we see when Jesus begins his ministry and John, the, uh, the evangelist, is, is, is there with him. He says that Jesus is the firstborn son, his only son. And he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who was slain. See, behold the Lamb of God is what he says, who takes away the sins of the world. Which is to say that Jesus, who is this firstborn son, also is this spotless Lamb. The term firstborn son is a term of inestimable value. 
And that's what I, what I tell my, my younger sister and brother all the time, that uh, firstborn son is a valuable term. <laughs> but it's pointing, you know, there is a cost in redemption and in the Old Testament. And so you think about it. Do you see how much it costs God to redeem his people in the Old Testament even? It cost him the precious blood of the lands, or it was the cost of the firstborn son. And Jesus is both the firstborn son and that precious lamb. So the question is, what is the most, you think about it this way, what is the most precious gift that you will receive this Christmas? What's the most expensive gift that you will receive? The most costly and expensive gift that we can receive is, of course, the firstborn son of God. The one and only. And so we see in a sense here, thinking about the Old Testament understanding of redemption, that redemption is costly. But also, redemption, we see here, is is this unearned thing. It is unearned by humans. Embedded in this song of Zechariah is the premise that redemption depends upon God's unconditional promises to Abraham and to David. See, and and if redemption depends on God's unconditional promises, on His covenant... But it means that God will deliver his people. He will do it, not because we deserve it or earn it, but simply because he says he will do it. You see, these are the promises to David, he mentions, and to Abraham. Now think about what a conditional promise is. Again, me being in the stage of potty training with my children, with my daughter, I... This is a conditional promise. I say to her, look, little, little Poppy Marie, if you poop in the potty, then I will give you chocolate. You see, my keeping of the promise that I make to her depends upon my daughter's keeping her end of the bargain. So in some sense, she earns chocolate by pooping in the potty. And so I keep my end of the bargain, end of the promise, and I give her chocolate. That is a conditional promise. But an unconditional promise is different. It's in the sense that I will just give you chocolate because I will give you chocolate. Which is a great promise right there. (laughs) You see, but my keeping of the promise does not depend on my daughter, anything she does. She receives chocolate in an unearned way. See, these, that is an unconditional promise. And these promises that Zechariah picks up on to, to David in verse 69 and to Abraham in verse 73, these are God's great unconditional promises, his covenants. They are unconditional They go back to this idea that God is going to redeem his people by one promised offspring. That promised offspring being Jesus. So Zechariah understands that Jesus is the offspring of this woman. That Jesus is the promised offspring to Abraham and to David. That he will rule forever. 
So this is this simple idea right here that we see. That Jesus coming to redeem us was dependent on God's great unconditional promises alone. And that means, in some senses here, that redemption is unearned by us. We can never earn it. It is given freely by God, even though it is much cost to Himself. And yet it's interesting that Christmas time, we oftentimes believe a message of very conditional promises. You know how it oftentimes goes. If you're a good person, you get more presents from a big old man with a long white beard. If you are not so good, then you don't get presents from this old white man with a long white beard. He gives you cold instead. You see, even though we, we say, okay, this is kind of crazy. We don't actually believe that. It kind of gets into the mentality of our thinking about how this Christmas comes. So if we do good, we get good things. We get gifts. When my wife was a kid, she, she, uh, she wasn't told this story about the guy, the old guy with the big white beard who gave, good, who gave presents to good kids. But she heard it all the time. And so what she would say, when she would go to bed at night on Christmas Eve, she wouldn't be able to sleep because she'd be so anxious and wondering if she'd been good enough to get presents this next year. See, being this anxious, sensitive soul that she was, she said she couldn't sleep because she worried she hadn't been good enough. And that way of thinking does get into our mentality about Christmas, even though we know that it's not dependent upon our goodness. You see, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, to summarize the first part, it says, Look, why did God redeem you? It's not because you were more numerous or nicer. In fact, God's people, you have proven that again and again, you deserve to be on the naughty list. Then verse 8, and this is what it says. It is because the Lord loved you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. It is because of his promise. And that is why we can say redemption is not earned. The third thing we see here is that redemption is this deliverance from our enemies. Zechariah picks up on this and reiterates this fact three times. He, he says it in verse 71. He says, For he has visited and redeemed his people, in verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. And then again, and then again in verse 74, he says, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. You see here what he's saying in a sense. Part of the definition, part of what it means to be redeemed is to be delivered from our enemies. Think about how God in the Old Testament redeemed his people. What Zechariah is thinking. 
Again, his people had become slaves to the Egyptians and their false gods. And they were unable to freely worship God. And so God, what did he do? He raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And he put to shame the Egyptian gods as well with the plagues. And eventually, you know, Pharaoh says, you can go. And he lets them go. And the Israelites are allowed to leave Egypt and they cross the Red Sea on dry land and then Pharaoh's army comes after them and was destroyed completely with the sea closing in on them. See, this is what is in Zechariah's mind about redemption, about the deliverance from his enemies. They were delivered from those enemies, the Egyptians who had enslaved them. And this is the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. And it's what Zechariah was thinking. Again, that passage in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, he says, It is that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the question, if, if this redemption, as we see it here, is this costly and unearned deliverance from our enemies, the question we have to ask is, who are, who are our enemies? Well, here it says, our enemies are those who hate us. Okay, well, who hates us? Well, those who enslave us are our great enemies who hate us. See, even for God's people, the real enemy, the real slave captors of God's people have always been the idols of our own making. See, even right after Israel had been taken out of the, out of the, uh, the sea and redeemed in a way, out of their slavery to, to, to Egypt, what happens? They go right, right again and right away and make this idol. And become, in a sense, enslaved to this idolatry. This is the challenge over and over. And for us, sometimes, sure, these, these enemies, these slave captors, these idols can be physical statues. But oftentimes we know it goes much deeper. It may be those things that make us feel secure and protected can be our idols. It are those things that we find comfort in such as food or coffee, which is a big one for me. These can be our idols. It can be those things that we take pride in, such as our families or our accomplishment. These things can become our idols. It can even be those things that we get excited about, but we ultimately will be let down by. These can be our idols. Now we're talking about things that let us down. One of the things we talked about also is Christmas letdown. So one time, one way you can know that you have these idols on Christmas is this big Christmas letdown that you have about things. So we get so hopeful and we get so excited about all the food and all the family that visits and all of the clothes and the new things that we get and the hope of the rest that we come. And then afterwards it comes and we get crashed down to the ground and we get let down. Because they don't really come through on all of our hopes. Christmas letdown can be a picture of potential idols in our, in our lives. But more importantly, more than just Jesus coming to deliver us from Christmas letdown as a potential idol, 
Jesus comes to deliver us from the deep idols and the deep sinful inclinations that hold us captive. This is what it means that Jesus came to be our Redeemer. See, Jesus came to do that. And how? How could He do that? How could Jesus come to redeem us from these sinful inclinations and from these idols that enslave us? Well, Jesus, when He comes here, when He comes, He comes as the only one who was never enslaved to sin or enslaved to idols. He was born as one without that inclination. And in a way like Moses, He comes out of the desert wilderness to us in our captivity. He comes in Luke 4 out of the desert, not giving into the temptations of Satan being captive to those things. He is not like that. He comes as a better representative. He comes as one who healed the sick, who worked miracles, who cast out demons and forgave sin. He comes as one who takes the curse of our idolatry, even though he himself never sinned. And he was killed by the great enemy that we face of death and the evil one and sin. But not only that, then he burst out of the grave like an exodus from the land of slavery. He left behind sin and he left behind death. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he sits there as an authority, as king. And he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell with us forever. And he renews the inclinations of our desires, of our hearts. And he satisfies our longings with himself. And he takes down the idols that are within our hearts. And he disarms them. And he delivers us from the powers of these things that enslave us. This is what Jesus has done. That he started by coming as a little baby. As one who was not held captive. And so sometimes we wonder, though, does God really have an interest in you or me? Does He really actually care about coming to my life, coming to my situation, coming into the world? And He says, again in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. You see, to say he has visited is to say that he has cared about you. He has been concerned for you. And how do we know? How do I know that he has been concerned in visiting you? It is that he has come to redeem you and deliver you from the sin and slavery uh, and idols that enslave you. That is the greatest and strongest evidence that I or anybody could give you that Jesus cares for you. That he has visited you. That he has come to deliver us from the enemies that enslave us, our sin and our idols. And sometimes we may know that Jesus has visited us and that he does care. Sometimes the way we know it is by the way he works in dismantling those sins and those idols that hold us. And I myself sometimes just want to say, look, Jesus, I have these, let me have these little things. Let me have these idols. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to take them from you because I love you. I'm going to take that 
and you are not a slave to them anymore. So we see that redemption, as Zechariah is understanding it here, is that there's this, it is this costly and unearned deliverance from our enemies. Those enemies being our idols and our sinful inclinations. He takes them. Now look at what Zechariah says next about this redemption in verse 74. He says that we... He says, we have this redemption. That we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. If you look up on the slide, there's the Holman Christian Standard Version, which puts it this way, which is a good way of getting at the meaning as well. And it says, he has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. See, what, we're, what Zechariah is saying here is that redemption comes before service. Our redemption comes before we can ever try and serve the Lord. You see, after you have been saved and been transformed by Him, and known that you have been released from our, your captivity, then we can joyfully worship and serve Him. See, we don't try to serve God to try to live or, or try to live godly lives so that we could be redeemed or so that we can be saved. That would be like serving Him out of fear. You see, serving God out of guilt or serving Him out of fear is maybe a sign that we have not understood redemption yet, that forgiveness that we already have. And it's something that God does not delight in that way. But, but when you have known that God has redeemed you by sending His Son, from there we can serve Him with joy. You see, trying to serve God so that then you would be redeemed or serving God out of fear, it would be like as, like as if I did nice things for my wife because I went up to the, when I went to the altar, my father-in-law came up and said uh, that he has a bullet with my name on it. And then afterwards, trying to serve because, well, my, my dad, my father-in-law, you know, he might kill me if I don't serve my wife. The question would be, am I serving her because I love her and delight in her, or am I serving her because I'm afraid of my father-in-law? In which case, you know, Natsu would not find my serving in the slightest bit, you know, nice or interesting. You see, redemption comes before we can serve him with joy. We don't serve the Lord out of fear. And that's one of these great things. The, the, the gospel, as simply as we can say it here, is look, as we, we celebrate it in Christmas, the gospel is that Jesus has come down to us. And if we trust him, he has already redeemed us. And we are perfectly accepted by God. And so therefore, out of a sense of joy of that acceptance and that love, do we go and serve him and worship him joyfully? John Calvin said on this verse, Before men can truly worship God, they must obtain peace of conscience. 
Before we can truly worship God, we must have peace of conscience. The image that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was, um, ironically, the song, The Little Drummer Boy. And the gospel here is kind of like the little drummer boy in reverse. So you know how the little drummer boy goes? The little drummer boy, he's anxious in a way. He's about, about the gifts that he brings, Jesus, because he doesn't know if they'll be accepted or they'll be good enough. He says, baby Jesus, I am a poor boy too. pum 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 I have no gifts to bring that's fit for a king. Shall I play for you? And he plays for him. He says, I played my drum for him. Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. I played my best for him. Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Then he smiled at me. Pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Me and my drum. But you see, for us, it's the opposite. It's that we know that Jesus already smiles at you. And because of that, we can play our drums. We can give our gifts and know that we are accepted. See, we have a Redeemer who already smiles at us. And therefore, we can serve Him. So we don't need to be anxious when we go and serve. We can go in joy. And I'll tell you, this is something that I struggle with all the time, is wondering, am what I doing? Am, is, is it enough what I'm doing? Is it right Will he like it? Will he receive it? But I have to remind myself this fact that I have been redeemed by Jesus and that he already smiles upon us and therefore we can go and give him our gifts and serve. And so at this point, Zechariah then switches uh, from the past tense to the future. See, everything he's been talking about is what God has done. And then the next few verses, he goes into what God is going to do. He talks about the future. And in a sense, this is kind of where we sit in redemption. We celebrate, on one hand, the advent of Christ already coming, having come. He already came, and he already accomplished our redemption. And yet, we also await his second coming. In the words of Zechariah, he says, Whereby the sunrise shall visit you from on high. This is talking about his coming again. And this is why we can still longingly sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it still be completely true. Not just, he came, he came. Because there is something that is to be yet done. And so the third thing, the next thing is that I want us to see is that there is a future redemption that we proclaim. Verse 76 and following, read it with me. He says, And you, child, talking about John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, John came proclaiming this. Something that was going to yet be it from his perspective. And in the same way, we also proclaim 
a message that is future, of his return and his coming. He proclaimed this message in verse 77 of forgiveness of our sins. And for us who have been redeemed as well, we proclaim the same message. And I want you to notice that this is a, a message in here that has power. It is a message that has power to deliver. See, verse 79, he says, this is a, this is a message that has the power to give light to those who sit in darkness. It clarifies reality as it truly is, and it probes into our diseases so that we may be healed. It is a light that gives light to those who are sitting in the shadow of death. It brings life. It is a message that gives light that leads us into the way of peace because it leads us to the very Prince of Peace himself. And so this is a message that has power, not because John has power in it, or not because you or I have any uh, power, but it is because it is a message from the Redeemer himself. And we know that this message is empowered from the Redeemer himself because it is a message that is empowered from the deep compassion of God. It is a message that is empowered from the deep compassion of God because look at verse 77. He says, the reason for it is because of the tender mercy of our God. See, the word here, tender, is a really interesting word. The Greek word is splagnon. Can you say splagnon? Splagnon. It's like, oh, my splagnon. (laughs) And that's actually what it means. It's this idea. It means your intestines. It's, It's this idea deep in God's intestines. Obviously, he doesn't have intestines. But it's a way of speaking about something, a conviction deep in God. Deep in his being, a compassion, a settled conviction in God. See, this redemption is a deeply compassionate and settled conviction of God. We might say redemption is in God's heart because of the tender mercy of our God. And since redemption is in God's heart, we know that Jesus will come again. We know it because it's in God's heart. Whereby, as a result, the sunrise shall again visit you from on high. You see, the point here is that there is a hopefulness and an expectation of His future coming to deliver us from this world and from our sin as far as the curse is found. When I was in high school, I lived in Dallas for a few years. And the church youth group I was a part of, we went on a camping trip in the middle of nowhere in this place somewhere called Brownwood, Texas. And we camped at some guy's ranch. And it was the middle of winter. And it was really cold. And my cheap, I mean frugal missionary parents decided that they would send me with this old sleeping bag. It was a really old sleeping bag that was worthless below 60 degrees. It was like a Vietnam era sleeping bag. And it was so cold. I couldn't sleep at all that night. You know, I tried to get up in the, in the fetal position and warm myself up. But I got colder and colder. And my body ached more and more. And I was unable to sleep. 
by 4 a.m. in the morning, I remember, I decided it was going to time to walk around. Maybe that would warm me up a little bit. So I took my old sleeping bag, and I wrapped it around me, and I walked up to this high hill. And it was still so cold. It was still so cold. And by this point, I could start to see the dark sky starting to turn a little bit purple. And as I saw that, I knew that the sun was going to come. And when the sun would come, I knew I would be warm. And so I came and I sat up on the top of this hill. And as the, I I remember this super strong to this day, as the sun came up, it warmed my entire body and I fell right asleep. And I rested. What strikes me to this day is that once the sun had come up, I could finally rest. And I knew that it would be so. You see, Jesus coming at Christmas gives us a joyful, a hopeful expectation that He will day, one day come and visit us. That He will deliver us from this wretched cold and darkness over the land and over our hearts. And He will give us rest. And so do you know it? That He will come again. See, Job in the Old Testament, he hoped for this Redeemer. He lost his home. He lost all of his possessions, his children. And his wife abandoned him. And he sat in the ashes one day, scratching his diseased body with a piece of broken pottery. And what does he say? It is for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he shall stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him. This week, as we prepare, see Jesus in the manger. See him and know that your Redeemer lives and that you are freed, trusting in him from all the idols that have enslaved you and me. That we are free and in our flesh, one day, we shall see God because our Redeemer lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think this coming week about your coming as a lowly child, we think about the cost of what it took to redeem us, to deliver us. And Lord, we... We look with hope to that coming day as well, the advent of your second return, Lord, when you will redeem us. And we thank you with this hope and this expectation that we look and that we have of your coming. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.